name is Adrian Ardias. I'm a high school senior here at Redeemer, and I'm going to be reading today's scripture passage. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Amen. So good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here, and we're excited to uh, start this Advent season with you. I love, love this time of year. It's good to see the church full. Uh, it's good to have our Berea friends with us. We're excited to have you guys worshiping with us in the coming weeks and months. Um, I'm really excited about this sermon series that we're going to be doing over the next four weeks, looking at the lives of these women, both in the Old and New Testament, that um, found themselves desiring something that they were not physically able to produce. Uh, because I do think it's a theme that strikes a chord with many of us in our lives. Uh, we all live from places of barrenness and scarcity, and so uh, there's great hope in the gospel for us as we, uh, as we contemplate these stories Martin Luther uh, once said this, and I, I think this, we need to come back to this over and over again in, in the coming weeks. He said, God creates out of nothing. Therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of them. And it's a fitting summary for, these, for the, this series of sermons, because for the next four weeks, we're gonna look at this theme uh, that I've said is threaded throughout the whole of the Bible Children who are born supernaturally to barren women is a sign and a showing of the reality that God's salvation is indeed by grace. It happens over and over again. Sarah today, it happens 
to Manoah's wife, who gives birth to the judge, Samson, who brings deliverance for his people in Judges 16. Happens to Hannah, who gives birth to Samuel, the great judge and the bringer of King David in 1 Samuel. To Elizabeth, who you will remember is the mother of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1 and 2. And then, of course, to Mary, who was not barren, but was a virgin. And so in that case, an even more miraculous, an even more miraculous birth, the birth of Christ our Savior. So it is so prevalent that when you're reading the Bible and you come across a verse, like if you look down there in verse uh, 30 of chapter 11, when you come across a verse like Genesis 11:30, where it says, Sarah was barren, she had no child. You should be conditioned to think what's about to happen. What's God about to do? Because, this, of course, this happens over and over again throughout the Bible. But if that's true, that also means that when you come across physical and spiritual feebleness in your own life, and you're tempted to despair or to be discouraged or to be frustrated by it, Instead, every time you come across physical, spiritual feebleness in your life, you should be conditioned to think by these stories in our scriptures, what's about to happen? What's God about to do? I know he's about to do something wonderful. And of course, this is most often not our experience. We panic, we despair, we lose heart, and we give up. And at the root of our panic and our despair is forgetfulness of the fact that Christianity is supernatural. It is essentially miraculous. Supernaturalism and miracle are at the very heart of the Christmas story because they are at the very heart of our faith. And so that's, I think, the question that I'd like to keep before us this morning as we look at this particular text and also throughout all of these sermons. Right now, right now, where you, where you are in this room as you came this morning, where are you the most faint? Where is there scarcity? What set of circumstances in your life are causing the most discouragement today, right now, as you woke up and got dressed and came to this place? What I hope to do is I hope to take these stories of powerlessness and lack and use them to re-narrate our stories of scarcity so that we can become, as we're gonna look at in the themes of Advent this, this year, a people of faith, joy, hope, and love. And so this morning, as we look at Sarah, Abraham's wife, Isaac's mom, her story is a lesson in faith, which is our theme. And so here's what we want to do. We want to look at this in three parts this morning, and it's really going to follow the same outline every week during Advent. But first, we want to look at if, if, if it is a lesson in faith, we have to see where Sarah begins. And she doesn't begin in faith. She actually begins in unbelief. And so it's a journey from, from unbelief, which is her first reaction to all that the, uh, the Lord says he's going to do, to secondly, she does get to the place where she and Abraham both become models of faith. And then we want to ask the question, thirdly, if there's the same journey we're going through, how does Christmas, how does Christmas grace help us become people who live by faith and not by sight, who live by faith, deep faith and not unbelief? So those are, those, those are kind of the, the three things we're going to look at this morning. So let's begin. Uh, first with Sarah's unbelief, because that's where she starts, okay? We gotta, we gotta make sure we realize that. And let's get into some of the details of her story. So if you follow along with me as it's, as it's laid out for you from the different chapters in Genesis that we, we highlighted there, we're introduced to Sarah in Genesis 11, verse 30. And the very first thing that we're told about her there, if you see, is that she had no child, because that's all really you needed to know. And that sets up the storyline. It's a foreshadowing 
It's a, it's a literary device there by the writer of these, of these materials. It's interesting now. The action doesn't even start there in Genesis 11 until Abraham is 75 years old and Sarah is 65 years old. So what we learn is she's already waited a lifetime for a child. When we meet her in Genesis 11, she's 65 years old. And then God came to Abraham and he promised him a son. That's Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. This man, Eleazar, will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then God had Abraham look up into the sky at the stars. And he said, count the stars. That's how many children I'm going to give you. Your descendants are going to outnumber the stars that you see in the sky. And we're told there, Abraham believed God. But Sarah did not. She responded in unbelief. Maybe not, maybe, you know, it was at least her initial reaction there. But let's think about that for a minute, okay? Does anybody kind of have some sympathy for her there? She's 65 years old. She's wanted a child her whole life. That's obvious from the text. Then God's promise of a son comes. But if you follow the text along, it's another 25 years before she actually holds that baby in her arms. 25 years. Have you ever had to wait 25 years for something? After you've already waited 65 years for it? Have you had to wait 25 minutes for something in our society? Yeah. Yeah. And Christmas is 25 days, kids. Can I get an amen? That feels like an eternity. And that's part of the point. It's part of what we're doing here in this whole time of year. And so you see, you see the hardship that this, this, that this is. Abraham is a model of faith in the Bible. And we're going to see this when we look at Romans 4, when we get back to Romans in the, fall, in the, in the spring. But when you read the word faith in the Bible, you should think of Abraham and Sarah. But this whole section of scripture is about faith and it's, and it's opposite, unbelief. We're talking about Sarah, not Abraham today. And so the place that you see Sarah's unbelief on display in the greatest you know, vivid, vividness is in that Genesis 18 passage. She's waited her whole life for a child. Again, let me recap. When she was 65 years old, the word of the Lord comes. She waited another 25 years. Finally, in Genesis 18, God appeared in person to Abraham, we're told in verse 10, or in verse 1, by the Oaks of Mamre. So this is a historical thing that's happened in a very specific place. They had a conversation. God said, okay, it's finally going to happen. I'm going to come back this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have the son. So this is it. This is what they've, it's finally going to happen. What they've been waiting for all this time, God's finally going to do. Sarah, we're told, overheard the conversation, and her response was not gratitude or excitement or wonder. She didn't rush into Abraham's tent and fall down at God's feet and just say, thank you, I've been waiting so long, this is such great news. It says in verse 12 that she, she stayed outside, she overheard, she laughed to herself. And the laugh was a laugh of derision. She was mocking God. My wife has uh, let me know that my dad, my sister, and I all have this particular noise that we make that I think we're not even aware that we make, but it's something like, Psh! or something, I don't know, you know. <laughs> I mean, some kind of guttural groan of some kind, and it is an expression of aggravation and contempt. And these sorts of things pass down through the generations, I suppose, because we can do it perfectly, all three of us. And so if you're out at Thanksgiving dinner with us, I mean, it's awful because it's coming from all different angles all the time. <clears throat> that was Sarah's laugh. 
that was what this moment was for her. And we know this because the author discloses her thoughts. And this is so, it, don't you love how raw the scripture is? Verse 12. I mean, this, this is why I know the Bible is, is true, that it's history, because this is such a human thing. She says, after I'm worn out. <laughs> I just love that. After I'm worn out. It was like, in other words, you have got to be kidding me. After I am worn out, and, and Abraham is old as dirt, now, now this is going to happen to me? That's verse 12. And you can feel, you can feel the years of pain and disappointment and longing and the hope that has been extinguished. They've, you know, all of those years have made her hard against hope. And though it came from the mouth of God, she doesn't believe it. And the text is clear about why. Look again, Genesis 18, the Lord's words come in verse 10. Sarah is listening, we're told, in verse 11. And then there is this short biographical sketch. I love the way the writer does this. So the, Lord, the, word, the word of the Lord comes, Sarah's listening, and then it kind of breaks into the story with this biographical sketch. Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And it's a brilliant literary device there because the narrator inserts the biographical info into the story like this to give a, us a window into Sarah's heart. There's God's promise that comes, and then the very next thing, on the heels of God's promise was the reminder of her circumstances because that's the way it worked in her heart. When God's word came, the very first thing Sarah thought about was her age and her barrenness, not God's power, not his love, not his covenant faithfulness. Do you see how her mind went? I've heard this before and it's never happened. She heard God's words. And her very next thought was about her circumstances. And she weighed what God said against what she could see. And that is what the Bible means by unbelief. Faith is viewing your circumstances in light of what you know to be true of God. Unbelief is viewing God's word in light of your circumstances. Faith is allowing your theology to be the lens through which you look at your circumstances. Unbelief is allowing your circumstances to become the lens through which you look at God. And that's what's happened to Sarah. Her long disappointment and sadness had become the controlling reality of her life, not God. So much so that she doubted his word. Did Sarah laugh? God said, why did Sarah laugh? And then comes verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And you see, that's the question. That is the dividing line between faith and unbelief. It is, it's a rhetorical question, by the way. It doesn't really ask a question, it makes a point. And so, if you wanna get grammatical for a second, the, the question mark at the end of that statement is really an exclamation point. But for Sarah, not for Sarah. For Sarah, there really was a question in the question. You understand what I mean? It really was in doubt for her. She was unsure because in her heart, her circumstances were the greater reality. They were the most real thing in her life. So she didn't answer the question, but 
her laughter answered it for her. It said, it hasn't happened yet. Why would it happen now? It's impossible now. It's too late now. And so you see, you see where the root of unbelief comes from. It comes from what the Puritans used to say, having low thoughts of God, thinking far too little of God's power and his authority and his love and his covenant faithfulness and the long view with which he takes in things in our lives. It's thinking, it's thinking too little of God and thinking too much of ourselves or of our circumstances. And so pose the question to your own heart because I think that that's what the text would ask us to do. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Let me ask, just let me ask you, is anything too hard for the Lord? What's the response? What do you feel on the inside when that question comes? Do you feel excited? Does it cause you to begin to look at something in your life differently than you looked at before the question came? Or is there a hesitancy? Do you find yourself thinking, yeah, but, you see? See, the reason these stories are so important and the rest of the Bible keeps coming back to them is because unbelief, in the words of one writer, is the prolific parent of all sin. You see it in Genesis. Before the man and the woman disobeyed God, they first doubted him. Before they disobeyed him, they first doubted him. So the sin underneath all other sin is the sin of unbelief. If you doubt God's generosity to you, you won't be generous. If you doubt his power in your life, you won't dare and risk and do great things for him. If you think God is exacting, not kind, you won't, you won't take risks. If you, if you don't know his love and forgiveness, you'll have a hard time forgiving. Any behavior problem is a believing problem. You, you first doubt and then you disobey. So if, you're, if there's a disobedience issue, you have to work your way back to figure out what the doubt issue is. And I want to make two applications of this in particular that I, that I have us think about from Sarah's story in particular before we move on to the, next, to the next point. The first is I think you can see this doubting in two other Ds. I didn't mean for it to be this way, but man, we're following the spirit this morning because everything has the same letter. So two other Ds as you think about doubt. And the first is despair or discouragement, whatever, despair. Are you despairing? Are you despairing? No one would argue with the fact that 25 years is a long time to wait when you've been waiting your whole life for a child, but it just wasn't happening fast enough for Sarah. And it hardly ever does, by the way, when God is involved. Can I get an amen on that? He moves slowly. That's one of the lessons from the text, the whole Bible, really. God hardly, hardly ever is in a hurry. Wisdom is slow. Character is slow. It takes days, weeks, months, and years to be to become something different than what we are. And sometimes we spend an entire lifetime making a mess of things, and then we turn around and expect to be able to clean it up overnight. In some cases, it takes generations for the God who spoke the universe into being to, to undo things that have been done. There are no quick fixes. How are despair and impatience then a lack of faith? Well, they're a demand, don't you see? God's not working on my schedule. That's his job, by the way. He's to do things for me when I think he should at the rate that I think he should. And if I was in charge, we'd already have this fixed, you know, this thing fixed. Of course, there'd be 30 other problems that I've caused in the fixing of it. When God is slow, see, that, that's what we have to see. But what's the truth? 
The truth is that when God is slow, it's a mercy. That's what the Bible says. And I would just ask you, have you ever been waiting a long time for something really important? Is that true of you now? I just wanna to say to you, God has not forgotten about you. It, he will come through. I don't know when, I don't know how, it may not look the way you think it's gonna look, but his slowness is not punishment, it is his patience. The problem is, is we want a microwavable meal. God is preparing a five course meal. And that's why it's taking so long. What he's preparing is so much better than you can imagine. So there's despair. And if you're despairing, trace it back to your unbelief. But then secondly, not only do you ask, are you despairing? But what you see in, in Sarah as well is you see she turns from her despair. She goes kind of the pendulum swings, not to faith. It goes kind of right past faith to the other side. And she becomes determined. So she starts despairing and she turns that despairing into determination. And so I would ask you, is there determination? In other words, this. If you, don't, if you don't know the story, Sarah got tired of waiting, so she took things into her own hands. She decided that she would do God's job for him because he just wasn't doing it fast enough. So she demanded that her Egyptian servant have a child with her husband. The child's name is Ishmael. If you want to have any, any idea of the foolishness of that decision, Ishmael is the father of Islam. And Ishmael and Isaac continue to war to this day, wreaking havoc on the earth. And it all came because of the sin of impatience. You wanna know how big a, big a deal the sin of impatience is? She put her will to work instead of waiting on the Lord. And she got the child she wanted, but she did not get the life she wanted. So the Bible tells us over and over again, wait upon the Lord. Because what we need most is a supernatural work that only God can do. We cannot demand his doing. We can only wait. But we should say waiting on the Lord is not passive. It's not passive, but it's not willful either. So despair on one side, determination on the other. Both are signs of unbelief. Both deny the reality of God. God isn't, I, I'm just, I'm falling apart because God's not for me. He's not going to do anything. I'm busy arranging for my life because I can't trust him to do it. It's kind of in my hands and I've got to do it myself. You see, both, both deny the reality of God. And what you see in the text over and over again is that Sarah and Abraham, both, they come in and out of faith. Throughout the material, it's a constant fight. It, it comes and it goes. Martin Lloyd-Jones defined faith as perpetual unbelief kept quiet. I love that. It's always there. You're never completely rid of it. This, this sense of unbelief trying to swing you towards either despair or determination instead of just waiting upon the Lord to do what he must do for you. It's faith is the perpetual work of keeping that unbelief quiet. Faith doesn't mean you never doubt. Faith is what you do with your doubt. See, it's an activity. You have to put it into operation. So let's look at the second part, and we're going to be much quicker from here. What is faith then? And I've already said, faith is viewing your circumstances in light of what you know to be true of God. Your theology becomes the lens through which you see everything else. So again, it's not so much the absence of doubt, because you see it all over in this text and yet, Abraham and Sarah are shown as models of faith and not doubt as we move forward in the Bible. So it's not, it's not the absence of doubt, it's the way you respond to your doubt. When God's word came to Sarah, her response was something like, yeah, but, and then she went on with her circumstances. That's unbelief. Faith is the opposite. Faith sees circumstances, sometimes overwhelming circumstances like Sarah's, and says, yeah, but God. So something like this, yeah, it's true. 
This would have been a faithful response. Yeah, it's true. I'm, I'm worn out. I'm too old to have children. Abraham is old as dirt. But, well, but what? But God. God has spoken. His words are true. He has made covenant with me. He can raise the dead to life and call into existence things that do not exist. Nothing is too difficult for him. What is old age before him? What is a barren womb before his power? That's faith. In, uh, in one of the Narnia books, Prince Caspian, uh, there's a place where Lucy finds Aslan the lion. And of course, she's the one that loves Aslan the most. Um, and it, it's not coincidental that she's the, the baby in the family. Uh, there's a child likeness to her faith. It's been a long time since their last meeting and she's, since they've returned to Narnia, she's been looking everywhere for him. And they finally meet in this wood and she runs up to him and tackles him and, and, and rolls around the ground and hugs him. And then she stops, she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he responds this way. He says, that is because you're older, little one. Every year you grow, you will find me bigger. That's faith. Faith is finding God to be bigger than he was yesterday, bigger than any problem you run into in your life. Abraham, we're told, believed God. This is chapter 15, verse 6. He believed that God was bigger than Sarah's barrenness, and it was counted to him as righteousness, we're told. So we can't get away from that word, can we? We've been talking about that for three months in Romans. That word righteousness, the way to rightness with God is not to be strong or to have it all together or to always do it right. The way to rightness with God is to know you're weak and to believe that God is bigger than your weakness. The way to rightness with God is to, to know that his power to save is greater than the message you make, that his Grace is greater than your sins. Your sins may be many, but we've been singing for weeks. His mercy is more. You get right with God, in other words, when you stop relying on your own strength and abilities. The essence of unbelief is to despair of God and trust in yourself. Faith is the opposite. It is to despair of your, yourself and trust in God. That is righteousness. And that makes sense, by the way, of why God dealt with with Abraham and Sarah the way he did and, and why we should expect the same kind of treatment. Because you cannot have faith until you come face to face with your own barrenness, until you get to the place of despairing of yourself. So in the case of Sarah and Abraham, decades of struggle with infertility and then another 25 years into old age and then the child is born. Why does God do it this way? For the people of Israel, 40 years in slavery in Egypt, and then the exodus, and you think, oh, it's finally gonna happen, but then 40 more years of wandering in the wilderness. Why? Why does it have to be this way? And I don't know what it is for you. I, I can't possibly know, but whatever it is, in the way that God is dealing with you, remember Martin Luther's word, that he creates out of nothing, and therefore until a man is nothing, he can make nothing out of him. When you're reduced to nothingness for whatever reason, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong. Do you hear me? Because none of us believe that. That is not our initial reaction to that. When you're reduced to nothingness, it doesn't mean something's wrong. It doesn't mean things are falling apart. It means the exact opposite. God is at work. The one who never experiences weakness is the one who should be really afraid. The apostle Paul said, we have this treasure 
And by treasure, he means life with God and knowing, the knowing of God in salvation. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing greatness and power belongs to God and not to us. And that's the lesson. That there's only one way to do life with God as jars of clay, not gold or ivory, jars of clay, ordinary, common, human frailty and weakness, loss, struggle, suffering. Why? Because the one lesson we have to learn is that the strength we need doesn't come from us. The wisdom we need doesn't come from us. The salvation we need doesn't come from us. It belongs to God. God does not demand strength. He demands to be the strength of those who are weak. He does not demand righteousness. He demands to be the righteousness of those who are sinful. Because the God of Abraham is a God of grace. And here's what I mean by grace, because we use that word a lot. And let me just finish with this. And this is where the Christmas story is really helpful to us, okay? Christmas grace. So how does Christmas grace help us to live by faith and not by sight? In a graceless world, it's easy. The strong eat the weak. The first are first and the last are last. That's just the way it is. But Christmas is something so utterly upside down that it rearranges the entire cosmos. Here's what the Christian gospel claims, that the great creator, God of the universe and all universes beyond became a child in a womb connected to an umbilical cord by, to his mother. And it was sheer miracle. It was virgin birth. And this child came to save his people, not through strength, but through weakness, by suffering death and defeat on a cross for their sins. And the gospel then results in the reversal of all previous arrangements. No longer would the strong eat the weak. Mary sings. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the humble. Now the last are first. And the first or last. Now, Joel 3, 10 says, the weak say, I'm strong. In other words, those who were on top of the list are now on the bottom. Those who were always picked last for teams in gym class are now first round draft picks. Because of grace. In Galatians 4, Paul uses Sarah and Hagar, her Egyptian servant who gave birth to Ishmael is an illustration of grace. He says, okay, and here's the contrast you got to see. He says, there's Sarah, <laughs> 90 years old. She's old as dirt too. I just felt insensitive to say that, but like Abraham, she's only 10 years behind him. She's weak. She's helpless. She's failed. She's worn out. And then there's Hagar. Hagar's young, she's strong, she's beautiful, she's prolific. And there they are side by side. And then here's the question, which woman bears the child whose descendants would be outnumbering the stars in the sky? Not Hagar. Do you see? Do you see? And then Paul goes on to quote the verse from Isaiah 54 that we read at the beginning. Sing, O barren one who did not... Who did not bear for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of the, them of, of her who was married now what does that mean and just hold on to this truth hold on to this truth it means that God intends to accomplish the most with those who have the least because he loves to magnify his grace he intends to accomplish the most with those who have the least because he loves to magnify his grace and so 
two applications as we close. The first is that this means that you and I must forsake self-reliance wherever we find it. And by that I mean this, if your strength is the power source for your life, if that's the way you live, then all you'll experience is limitations. You'll be limited by the reach of your abilities and strength, and therefore you'll swing between despair and determination. If, you, if, that's, if that's where you are, then that's because self-reliance is at the core of that. There will be a smallness about your life that will match the smallness of God in your imagination. That's the person who lives by sight. But if your weakness, if you come to know what these stories teach, if your weakness flips the switch of God's power, if it's your need that flips the switch of his power and love and covenant faithfulness in your life, then all of a sudden your life is open to all the possibilities of his limitless supply. And you can live a big life that matches the bigness of God in your imagination, but you have to forsake self-reliance. And then the second thing you have to do is you have to re-narrate your struggles. By that I mean the places where you experience the most struggle, where you feel the most weak. Please, please hear me. Those are not places of forsakenness. I expected that to land different in the room. I, right? Do you feel that? Where you feel the most weak, where you're the most desperate, where there's the most brokenness and sin you're up against and you just want to howl at the full moon over it. Those are not places of forsakenness. They are the places where God is most at work in your life. So don't despair. You should be the most hopeful in the very places where you're tempted to be the most discouraged. The things that seem to be going well are probably not going as well as you think. And the things that seem to be falling apart, that is where you should have the greatest sense of expectation. God is making you nothing in order to make something out of you. And this cosmic rearranging grace of God in Jesus Christ can rearrange you. God did give Sarah a son in her old age, didn't he? Genesis 21, and his name given to him by God was Isaac, which means he laughs. And Sarah held that baby boy in her arms after all of those years. And in verse six of that chapter, she said, God has made laughter for me. <laughs> and that's just the most wonderful thing. God turned Sarah's laugh of derision and scorn into a laugh of pure joy and worship because she learned the lesson that her physical limitations were no match for his power and love. And that is the reversal that can happen for you and for me too as we walk throughout this season. Do you believe that? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? The story of Sarah and Abraham would suggest the answer to that question is a resounding no. For we live by faith and not by sight. Amen? Let's pray. So, Father, as we continue to worship this morning and as we prepare to come and gather around your table, would you come and encourage us with these truths where we are tempted either to despair or to get busy making for ourselves the lives we want because we're tired of waiting on you, would you just, would you in both cases stop us and cause us instead to wonder at the great mercy and power that you showed in this story, which is, which is the story of our lives too. These are archetypal stories that we read here. These are not just stories that happened to two people at some point thousands of years ago. This is the way you consistently deal with your people that we see here. 
Abraham and Sarah's story is our story. We are, we are the children of Abraham, those who have rejected any sense of self-reliance and have instead come to you and look to you in faith to give to us what we cannot provide for ourselves. That is the very essence of faith. It's what it means to be a Christian, to know that in ourselves we are nothing. And to bring our empty hands to you, for you're a God who fills empty hands where you find them. And so help us to do just that in these last moments of our service, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. That's the perfect song to end. Um, uh, because not only is what God has done for us, that, that phrase, the glorious impossible, really speaks to that. But I think what he now sends us out into the world to do, there is a sense in which everything the life of faith is, is captured by that phrase. We are go, called to go and to live the glorious impossible. But we have courage to do that because of these words that, God, that we part with, that God sends us with. Uh, we go in his power and in his strength and with his words to sustain us, to receive this great good word from the Father and the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.